Heavenly Father, this morning we sing hymns lauding the faith and the actions of those who have gone before us. We recognize that those, that faith and those actions were undergirded by your great grace. Indeed, it is this church that stands and this ministry, even each and every one of us, are supported and undergirded by that same faith. And we commemorate that faith now in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The first part of our service today is going to be dedicated to those who gave their all, their very lives, so that we could be free. Before we start this message, though, we need to make sure that we are ready to absorb the truths that come from God's Word, to focus our attention completely and entirely upon Him and what is to be said. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer that enables us to do that, gives us an opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, today we remember the great sacrifice that so many have made in order for us to continue to be free. We recognize that you are the God of freedom and the greatest sacrifice was made for the greatest freedom. And that is that we were purchased by the blood of Christ outside to help us to leave the slave market of sin. We are free to do so. We recognize that our nation is in great peril, not only from those that are without, but especially from those who are within. You are no longer found in our schools, no longer found in the halls of government. There's a lot of lip service, but no real trust and obedience. And unfortunately, you are not found in many of our churches. What a tragedy it would be for the great sacrifice of so many, the suffering of so many, to be evaporated away day after day as we see that being the case with regards to our freedoms. So we turn to you. We recognize that you are the only one with the power. You are only the one, one only with the ability to save this nation and to carry forth that great honor and tribute of the sacrifices that have been made. So we pray that you will help us to do that, to make you and your word are number one priority. That our leaders would repent 
that they would recognize that they are ministers of God for good and that this nation may be turned around. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen. Before we uh, observe a tradition of uh, Memorial Day, I'm going to ask uh, Candy Schultz to come up. She has something to tell us. Uh, she has uh, something that I think is uh, not only interesting but very memorable. Uh, when she told me the story about the scarf, I, I said, you need to tell the rest of the people about this. So, Candy. right here that was um, the actual parachute of a gentleman named Lee Vallone who jumped into Normandy and came home with one in the evening. I wanted to find more information about him, so I had a friend of mine look him up on the internet, and he was in the 82nd Airborne in the Parachute Infantry Regiment. Once he made it through D-Day and he came home, he was an entertainer, and he was quite famous. He spoke three languages. He was an amazing man, but with parachutes, he was able to bring home from Normandy. He was there during Omaha Beach, Utah Beach, San Beach, and the battle was amazing. However, I didn't get to find out exactly the details. So I looked online to find any relative I could find of his, and his wife was still living. I called her yesterday, and it isn't the scarf that's important. It's the fact that I was able to do it. She was a believer, but she wasn't a shocking and she said, you know, I don't really know much about what Lee did in the war. He didn't tell me anything. But I am thrilled that you called me and you checked on me because I'm not very social and I'm 86 years old. And this was a blessing to me. And it would not have happened if Mike hadn't asked me to tell about this scar. But he was in the parachute infantry regiment. And the colonel always used to say, an action, an offensive action, Never ever win taking the offensive the defensive. The offensive is the only action where a decision can be made. And the other thing that was always said was, you can't pick your battle. The Lord is that for you. But you can thank the stars for the help that never fails. And we are under our general right here in the Patriot Bible Church Infantry Regiment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Candy. I was amazed holding that. That's made out of silk. And how much material it must have taken just for one parachute. And there were thousands of them. Anyway, we appreciate that, Candy. Uh, it's been the tradition at Country Bible Church for quite a while to read a citation of a Medal of Honor winner on Memorial Day. I borrowed that tradition from the church in which I was ordained, which was Baraka Church. This is a, a book, Volume 2, of Medal of Honor recipients. And the book is nothing but uh, the names and citations of men who have won the Medal of Honor. It's, it's amazing to to go through this book, and it's hard to just 
randomly pick out one and read it. However, I think it's fitting that we do so because I don't know if this citation or any of these citations were ever read publicly again after they were awarded the Medal of Honor, usually by a president. So we're going to do that this morning. The recipient of the Medal of Honor was Eli Lamar Whiteley. He was first lieutenant, U.S. Army. He was in Company L, 15th Infantryman, uh, in Infantry Division. He served as a platoon leader. The date of the action was Sigholzen, France, on December the 27th, 1944. And by the way, uh, his birth was in uh, Florence, Texas. He's a Texan. And he is uh, buried in City Cemetery, College Station, Texas. His citation reads as follows. While leading his platoon on 27 December 1944 in savage house-to-house -house fighting through the fortress town of Sigholzen, France, he attacked a building through a street swept with withering mortar and automatic weapon fire. He was hit and severely wounded in the arm and, soldier, and so, uh, shoulder, uh, but he charged into the house alone and killed its two defendants. Hurling smoke and fragment, fragmentation grenades before him, he reached the next house and stormed inside, killing two and capturing 11 of the enemy. Now remember, everything that I'm going to be re reading after this is after he's already been severely wounded in the arm and shoulder. He continued leading his platoon in extremely dangerous task of clearing hostile troops from strongholds along the street until he reached a building held by fanatical Nazi troops. Although suffering from wounds which, he had rendered, which had rendered his left arm useless, he advanced on the strongly defended house and after blasting out a wall with a bazooka fire, I don't know how you shoot a bazooka with one arm, but he did it. He charged through a hail of bullets, wedging his submachine gun under his uninjured arm. He rushed into the house through the hole torn by his rockets, killed five of the enemy, and forced the remaining 12 to surrender. As he emerged to continue his fearless attack, he was again hit and critically wounded. In agony and with one eye pierced by a shell fragment, he shouted for his men to follow him to the next house. He was determined to stay in the fighting and remained at the head of his platoon until forcibly evacuated. By his disregard for personal safety, his aggressiveness while suffering from severe wounds, his determined leadership and superb courage, First Lieutenant Whiteley killed nine Germans, captured 23 more, and spearheaded an attack which cracked the core of the enemy resistance in a vital area. That's what this book is all about. One of the citations. I hope that on this Memorial Day that you will just pause and think about these men. Remembering is very important. This is one way that we honor them. And we recognize that 
that's not so fashionable and popular these days. Everybody thinks of Memorial Day of the Indianapolis 500 and barbecues and cookouts. None of that would, none of that would happen were it not for the sacrifice of these men and women who gave their all. Now, if you would take your Bibles and open to Joshua, the book of Joshua. We're going to start with chapter 7, but before we do, we're going to have a few loose ends that we need to tie up in chapter 6. Chapter 6 reminds us of the Israelites as they faced the raging Jordan River and as they faced the daunting walls of Jericho. There was no human solution. I want the notes off over here if they're on for right now, if you don't mind. There, thank you. <clears throat> There's no human solution to their problem, and the only biblical solution was to wait on the Lord. Sooner or later, we all come to that situation, don't we? Where there's no human solution. And that is a critical point of faith. The reason it's a critical point is because it is then that we must decide to trust the Lord and rely on Him or we're going to revert to human viewpoint. Now when I say rely on the Lord, what we're really talking about is trusting the Lord. If you really want to get down to it, most of the time we're referring to waiting on the Lord. Waiting isn't easy to do. It's harder for some of us than others. But especially when you're under pressure. When the temptation is to revert to what we're so comfortable with, and that is human viewpoint, the way most people think. But when we revert to human viewpoint, one of the first symptoms that we've done that is complaining. Anytime that you hear yourself complaining, it's like a neon sign blinking. You're out of fellowship. You're out. You're out. Get back in. How comfortable are you with complaining? Be honest. I'm very comfortable with it. We've all had a lot of practice in complaining, haven't we? You didn't hear Joshua complaining when he faced the river. They weren't allowed, the Israelites were not allowed to complain when they were circling the city. They had direct orders. Keep your mouth shut. 
For seven days, they had to do something that seemed like it was ridiculous. They had no idea why they were doing it, and they couldn't talk about it, and that made it ten times worse. When you're facing adversity, when you're uncomfortable with something, and you can't complain, what's the fun of that? I mean, if we can't complain to others and get a little pity get a little notoriety, something. We can't do any of that. God does not allow for it. In His economy, in His way, we're not to complain. We are to trust and obey. When we opt for the human viewpoint, not only do we complain, fear, impatience, anger, and bitterness make themselves at home in our soul as confidence and security and contentment leave. You can't have fear and worry. You can't be full of anger and dread and have contentment and confidence. Can we? That's the point they were at. That's the point that we come to from time to time. So when we're going through Joshua, we're just not reading stories and talking about things that people did back then. It was good for them. But let's live in the real world. I'm facing issues that there's no solution. Many times we bring these things on, on ourselves, but sometimes God brings us to that point. So we have to remember, we have a choice to either utilize the doctrine that we have, think divine viewpoint, pass the test, or we can just be like the mediocre believer that acts just like an unbeliever and complains and frets is angry and then gets into bitterness, and bitterness is hard to overcome. Here's something very important that we must remember. While we are waiting, we are to do something. I'm glad to hear that. Even when I'm in the lines at HEB, and I'm in a hurry. It makes it much easier if I have something to do. Many times when I finally get up to the point where you're at where the magazine racks are, I'll try to concentrate on the headlines. That does work a little bit. <laughs> you know, all the bizarre things they have there. But only for a moment or so, and then I'm back to reality, and I'm clenching my teeth and wondering why. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. We're going to find out what we can do while we're waiting. <clears throat> I think I'll put, I've got the Scripture on my notes, and I'll put it up there if y'all don't read ahead on the notes, if you just stick to the Scripture. You can put it on here, too. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Now, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we have 
the instructions as to putting on the armor of God. We put on armor because of why? Because we are in spiritual combat every single day. What's the chances of a soldier surviving in combat if he has no armor and he has no weapon? And we break into it in verse 17, and it says, And take the helmet of salvation. Now, take is an aorist active imperative. That's the main verb here, and take. We're going to have two participles that's going to support this, but that's the main verb. Aorist tense is in a point of time. Active voice, you're the one who has to do it, and it's command. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In all the ar armor that we are to put on, it's all defensive except this last one, which is the Word of God. Now here's where we're getting to the part that the things that we are to do while we're waiting. The first one is praying and underline that. Now I have the the King James Version up here because I liked it better. I, I rarely do that. But the reason I chose the King James was because in the New American Standard Version you don't have the participles ending in I-N-G and therefore you don't get the uh, ongoing action because this participle is a, a present middle participle. The present tense mean we, means we are to keep on praying. The middle voice means that we are benefited by our own action. Prayer is such a wonderful thing because not only does prayer benefit those who we are praying for, but it also benefits us. Even when we're praying for other people and not ourselves, we are still benefited by that. That's what the middle voice is telling us. So we are commanded to take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Supplication means petitions. This is petitioning God for help and deliverance of other people. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit means make sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit when you go to the Lord. That means you must acknowledge any unconfessed sins before you pray, that way you're in fellowship with God. He's going to hear your prayer. And here's the second participle that supports take, watching. And it is a present active participle. Notice both of these are in the present tense. It means we are to keep on doing these things. I think the New American Standard says something about being alert which is a good translation. I just like the I-N-G on these participles. It gives the idea more of a continuous action. And watching there unto with all perseverance, underline that perseverance, we, we have a lot of words here, a lot of grammar and syntax that is demonstrating that this has to be ongoing. We have present participles. Participles that are in present tense. Notice it says, praying always. Watching thereunto with all perseverance. We have to endure doing this. And supplication or 
that would be making petitions for the saints. So what does this mean? We've hit a brick wall. We've come to circumstances where there's nothing that we can do to get over the wall or get through the river. And we have to battle that urge, that tendency to complain. We have to faith rest. We need to think divine viewpoint. We need to trust God. But while we are doing that, time passes. We have to wait. But during that waiting, we are to do what? Pray, continue to pray, and also be alert. Be mentally alert because God is going to provide a solution and you don't want it to pass you by. Maybe it's subtle. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But you want to be mentally alert, spiritually alert. What is it that we do that keeps us alert? You're here. You're hearing the Word. You're learning and you're growing. That is the way that we stay alert. We don't have as many people here today as we normally have. I figured that was the case because this is a holiday uh, and it can be a, a three days. For some people, it might be a four-day holiday and they take advantage of, uh, advantage of that and they leave. They go and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not condemning that in the slightest. But when these people get back, they have an option of either staying alert or not. They can either go to the Internet and get, get this message on the Internet. They can get a CD, DVD, MP3. We got all kind of threes and Ps. And if you want it, we can get it for you. We're not going to force it on anyone, but anybody who wants it is going to get it. That's how we stay alert. And we must persevere. I hate persevering. Don't you? Because persevering means waiting. And I'm not a good waiter. I don't mean serving food. I probably wouldn't be good at that either. Probably half the food would be sampled by the time it got there. <laughs> or gone. I'm talking about the kind of waiter that... You know, some people... You can't see my feet. But some people... They pat their foot while they're waiting. I guess that's nervous energy. But you can wait on the Lord without patting your foot or grinding your teeth. You can do it. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're trusting Him and you're thinking divine viewpoint, waiting can be a breeze. And during the waiting, what are you doing? You're praying you're studying and growing and being alert. And we can relax. Who's the pressure on? Who should it be on? God. Not that He's under pressure. But, I mean, we give our burden to Him. We're trusting Him. We're waiting on Him. We see a wall, a fortress, in fact, double walls. And we don't have any... Battering rams, we don't have any towers, we don't have any catapults. And we're told to go around the city every day and blow the horns. 
and don't talk. Wow. The sixth day, it must have been getting pretty old. God knows when the right time is to fall the walls, to break them down, or to part the river so we can go across on dry ground. But he's not going to do it if you stay in carnality. Because he has to get the glory. And if you're complaining and you're full of fear and dread, he's not going to get the glory. Here's another thing we learned in chapter 6. We learned that our great God is able to deliver believers who trust in him. Remember Rahab? Remember Rahab's house was built on the wall? Actually, between the walls. There was a double wall in Jericho, and her house was built in between. And all the walls collapsed. All of them fell down, except one little place where her house was. What a coincidence that God was held accountable when Rahab said, Remember us and my family when you come to take the city. And the men said, We will do it. Remember that? Does trusting pay off? Is God able to deliver? None of us know what is ahead. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what the rest of today holds. It's trite, but it is true. We do know who holds the future, though. But we have to know him intimately. We have to know him and love him enough to trust him and obey him. Okay, now let's go to chapter 1, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 7. I just wanted to tie those few ends together before we moved on. I want to be on the record right now saying and telling you that I love the book of Joshua. I have learned so much already in the first six chapters. And the seventh chapter, <laughs> it hits home right where we live with the very first word. Y'all see it? Huh? But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, we want to be specific here, took some of the things under the ban, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Isn't this just like it? How did we end chapter 6? The fame of Joshua spread and the people had two great victories and they were on top of the world. Oh man, is this great. And then we start chapter 7 with, but. Oh, those buts. Isn't there always a but? Huh? I know there is. We live in the devil's world. We have an old sin nature. What do you expect? But. seems like there's always that but. You see, the, the Bible is, such, is so real. 
It applies to us. It reaches in and just <laughs> grabs our heart. If the Bible's written by men, you'd never see this but here. You would see a fairy tale ending. This is written by Jews. The, the, the Israelites, you know, the, these are descendants of the Israelites. And they would be having a fairy tale in, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> Isn't that a crock? It just doesn't happen. We have to be ready to deal with the but, because the buts are always there. There's also a very important issue that we have to deal with right away in verse 1. And that is that our God is holy and His righteousness and His justice are perfect. And you know what that means? It means He is totally impartial. Both non-believer and believer must abide by God, God's absolutes. God will not compromise His perfect character or His attributes for anyone. He didn't do it for His own Son who is perfect. Certainly, He's not going to do it for His sinful, rebelling children. We don't get a path. He doesn't turn his head away or wink at sin because he is perfectly righteous and justice. That goes for the believer as well as the unbeliever. And there are some people that think they're really special. They're like the church lady. Instead of saying, is it that special? Aren't I'm special? And you are special in the sense that you are a child of the Most High, that you're royal family but you're still a sinner. And arrogance is still something that we have to battle every single day. You want proof? God is not partial. I'm not, I'm not going to have you go to the verses, but I'll give you the address, and I'll just, for the sake of time, I'll just... Um, relate what happened. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 through 26, just those three verses, Moses came that close to God killing him. God came that close to killing Moses. Moses? Isn't Moses probably out of every person in the Bible, ex ex excluding Jesus Christ, who would be closer to God than Moses? Look how God used Moses. And this is when he was going back to Egypt. God says, you circumcise your sons. That's the Mosaic law. No exceptions. Moses had ignored it. He hadn't done it. And it was his wife, Zipporah, and she was Porah 
in spirit. I'm sorry, I just had to say that. (laughs) Zipporah saved him because Moses was too weak to do it. God was about to kill him. She circumcised the the son and called him a bloody husband. And you just can read it and see what all went down there. But the point is, God was not going to spare Moses, even as great as Moses was, and how wonderfully and powerfully God was able to use Moses. It didn't matter. God was not going to cut him any slack. That's the rule. No exceptions. Do it or die. God can raise up a rock and do what he did with Moses if he wants to. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 27, we found out that Moses lost his temper one time. And God said, you don't cross the Jordan, you don't go in the promised land. That's pretty severe for someone who had led the people all this time and all the things that Moses did. Very easily, in our human viewpoint, we think, well, God could have said, look, what all Moses, look at all the good things that Moses had done. The good things does not mean that you compromise your values or your attributes when someone, even if it's someone in your family, even if someone close to you does wrong, the full weight of that rejection, of that sin, of that error, whatever it is, must come down on them or else you are not following God. This is a very important message for those who have children. Many times, parents will excuse their children, the little darlings. They're my children. My child will never do something like that. Or even when they catch him doing it. Well, he's been so good this week, I think I'll just gloss over that one. Is that what God does? I remember it was in 1970. I was living in some apartments and went down to the... uh, they, they had one area where the, uh, wash, the little washeteria there where you go and wash your clothes and so forth. Went down there and the, um, my clothes were all orange. I mean, bright orange. The water was orange. And I said, well, they weren't orange when I put them in there. I looked around and there was an adult in there and I said, uh, do you know what? Have you been in here a while? Do you know anything that happened about these clothes here? And the lady said, Yes. Little Johnny, I don't remember his name or whatever it was, was in here and I saw him do it. I said, Thank you. Where does Johnny live? Well, he lived in the apartments right there. Go up to the, the apartments, knock on the door, and a lady answered the door. And I said, uh, Ma'am, Are you the mother of little Johnny, whatever his name was? Yes, why? I said, well, little Johnny just ruined all my clothes. There's something orange. It's all orange. You poured something in there. Oh, he would never do that. I said, there's an adult down there that's an eyewitness to it. And she turned and hollered back to her husband, which was out of view. 
Henry, Johnny ruined the clothes of uh, this gentleman in here, poured something in there. And there's a voice that came back and said, well, what do you want me to do about it? And the woman shirked her shoulders and went like this. Her little darling did not get the full weight of what should have happened. Fortunately, little Johnny wasn't there, and I never saw little Johnny. <laughs> not that I had the right to do anything right then, but you know who I feel most sorry for is little Johnny. His parents are abusing him. He will not grow up with values. He will not understand that he is held accountable and that's what God is the perfect parent to us. So those are two examples of how we see that God is not partial to anyone. Now, we see something else in verse 1. Now, maybe you've seen this again. Let's go slow, just verse 1. We won't even read the whole part. But I'm going to read enough to where something should jump out at you in verse 1. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the sons underlying sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Now, the ban is talking about Kerem. Remember that? God had already told the people that when you take the city, you don't take anything. You don't take one silver coin. You don't take any gold. You don't take anything of value. They were to kill everything that breathed, and they weren't even to take the food Nothing, because it was all dedicated to the Lord. This was the first city, and it was tantamount to being the first fruits that were, were to go to God. So when he says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, and all, you know, son of all these people, um, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons, underline that, of Israel. Now, what do you get out of that? Do you see it? Does it jump out at you? Sons is plural, right? Achan is what? Singular. What is going on here? The sons of Israel didn't take this. They didn't take anything. And as we, if we read on... Uh, enough. We're, it gives the details as to what happened, uh, how Achan did. He just his he he yielded to temptation and decided to get some uh, silver coins, some gold, and uh, something else. I can't remember what it was. And he went and dug a hole and hid it under his tent. Now you have all this glorifying going on. Everybody's happy and everything. Everybody's happy, but God's not happy. You ever heard that old saying, when mama's not happy, nobody's happy? By the way, moms, that's not, a, that's not good. It might be true, but <laughs> it's not biblical. When mama's not happy, nobody should know it, and no, no one else, because it could spill over into complaining or other such things. But anyhow, uh, God wasn't happy, and he is calling to task all the people. Now, all the people didn't take it, just Achan did. Now, we've got to deal with that, don't we? But not yet. First of all, it looks like God is holding them all responsible for what one person, what person 
one person has done. Now, ooh, I hate to start this now. I don't have much time to develop it, but we'll give it a shot. We'll get going a little bit on it. Um, no one is an island unto themselves. Think of that first. And we're not. Achan was involved socially with the total nation, and when Achan got out of joint, the total nation gets out of joint. Now, before you start foo-fooing that and say, huh? Not that you would say, huh? That's, but it's as if all the relationships we have ever had are covered by a net, and you can't have one person foul up without influencing the others within that net or within that group or within that association. If you're in a group and there's a person in that group that violates God's will in a very flagrant way, you are implicated because you are associated with that group that that person exists inside your group. In other words, we here at Country Bible Church, this is a local church. And as a local church, we are associated with one another. More than that, we are a family. We are a spiritual family. And when someone does something very foul, it affects the rest of us. I can assure you that if someone in this congregation did something so heinous that it made the news, you would not like to volunteer that you were a member of Country Bible Church if this person was a member. You see the association there? That's part of it. It's not all of it. But I want you to understand, we are not islands to ourselves. We are connected. That's not only true in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New Testament. We'll go to a scripture that demonstrates it. I wish I had more time to develop it, but let's go there anyway for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians 5 has to do with a local congregation in the church age. First Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immor immorality, the Greek word there is parneia, among you, and immor immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now, what this is talking about is that there is essentially incest, the father's wife, this speculation, probably, probably wasn't his real mother. It probably was a stepmother, but it didn't make any difference. Now, this is something that is absolutely repugnant and heinous that a son would have, and have here it means in a sexual connotation, his father's wife. Verse 2, And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead 
in order that one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. They weren't grieved. It was that they didn't care. There was no true connection between them, between the members of the congregation and this person. Verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In other words, Paul had authority over this church whether he was present or not. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. doesn't mean he lost his salvation by any means. That's impossible. But he had done something grievous. He had not repented. He had not been humble and acknowledged his sin. That this spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They were boasting about acquiescing and allowing this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You see the principle here? One member in the congregation is leaven and it can leaven the entire lump. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you in fact just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. There's a lot that I could teach about that, but I just want to—I want you to see the effect of one person in a congregation, how it affects everyone, and this is going to connect back to why God is going to judge all the Israelites because the the wrongdoing of one. In our social relationships, every man is depending on everyone else. Each one of us needs each other, and that's what's happening here. This one man committed a sin. He's committed fornication, and the other believers should have helped him realize the seriousness of his sin. They should have had a ministry in his life, but they didn't. They didn't care. There was no interrelationship at all because it appeared that they just didn't care about him. This is very interesting to look at in verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. You might not have caught this when reading this. Where in the, those seven verses do you ever read of Paul personally addressing the man that sinned? Do you see it? He doesn't, does he? Who is Paul addressing? The entire congregation. Sounds like something God would do over in Joshua. Who is he addressing the entire congregation? A local church is not just a place where you come and get doctrine. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a place where you come to learn and grow, but it's also a place where you connect with other people. You, if you just come to church and said, I got my doctrine, now let's, we'll shoot out. Let's hurry up and get home. You don't talk to other people. You don't care about other people. You got your doctrine. That's all that's needed. Uh, and, and, and don't be bothered. I got so many other things. I can't be bothered with connections in the church. That is a sick family. 
That is not the way that God designed it. When a family member is struggling with something and the other member's attitude is, it's not my problem, that they are wrong, God holds them accountable for it. I think a normal result of growing in grace, growing in your capacity to love, means that you care about other people. Certainly you should care about the people who are part of your family, part of your church family, people who are like-minded. I know that this is true for this church and probably every biblical church is that you are closer to those who are positive towards God's Word than you are to even your blood kin family in some cases that may be negative. And that's good. That's the way it should be. But the idea that we come here, we get our doctrine, we leave, and we don't, we, we don't want to interfere. We don't want to pry. We don't want to invade privacy. Those are, our, those are right things to be conscious of. But to stiff-arm people because I've got my doctrine, I've got my notebook under my arm, I'll see you next time, I'll give you a wave. I don't think that's the love that we are to share between brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this is all a symptom of why God is holding the Israelites accountable for what Achan did. I told you I wish I had more time to develop this. I've already gone past time. But it's something to think about. When we have our supper after communion, do you go huddle around people that you know and are comfortable with? Or do you go out and meet people and talk to them, find out who they are, what are they about? You might say, well, I'm shy. If you're shy, you ought to be more convicted to go and talk to someone else that might be shy. Someone that maybe is a newer person and they don't, maybe don't know how to make friends as well because maybe they're shy. All this has to do with this connecting that I'm talking about. I love it when I see y'all talk to one another and embrace one another and just, it's great. This is a church body. It is a family. And if we avoid those connections and there are people in our own midst that need help, need direction, need ministry, whatever it is, and we avoid it. It's not my problem. I don't want to interfere. That's a cop-out. I don't want God holding anyone here accountable, and especially this church, the way that he held the Israelites accountable for Achan. We don't want to miss that principle. Well, now I'd like everyone please to bow your heads, close your eyes. We've run past time, but that's okay. And if it's not okay with you, you're invited not to come back. If you're a clock watcher, go watch a clock somewhere else. Oh, that may sound harsh. I don't want anyone here that doesn't want to be here because you're just wasting your time and you might pollute someone else with your bad attitude. But the issue now before us is a kind of freedom that only believers recognize 
And that's the freedom of knowing that Jesus Christ paid for your sin. He died on the cross. He was buried. He was resurrected and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. Eternal life is a gift that's only given through those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him and His work for it. And if you're here and you haven't done that, the opportunity is before you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. For the rest of us, we need to look for opportunities. The time is short to give the gospel. And we are to live in the freedom that God has given us. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're so thankful for You and the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. We're also thankful for those who have gone before us and made the ultimate sacrifice for us. We pray that we will be praying and watching, being alert as you break down the walls and open the river before us. We pray it all in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.